Uh, let's pray and we'll get started. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Um, Lord, we don't have to feel our way through life, but Lord, we have something to, to sink our teeth into. Uh, Lord, your revelation about um, who you are, who we are, how your kingdom works, what this world's like, where do, where do we find our place in it. Uh, Lord, I pray you would, uh, Lord, that you would um, correct us tonight, Lord, that you would comfort us tonight, um, or that you would empower us tonight. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, this past summer, it's something I've never done before. Uh, I went on a two-week vacation. Never took a t- taken a two-week vacation. And I did it for uh, really one big reason, and that, that was I just needed to get away. I needed to not work. I needed to not be in Lexington. And most importantly, I needed not to have a cell phone. Uh, and so what I did was um, I, I committed to not open up my laptop, uh, and I committed to not look at my cell phone for two weeks. The only thing I use my cell phone for, is because I'm totally addicted to it, uh, is the sound machine. I didn't want to go spend $20 on a sound machine, so I just kept my, I put it on airplane mode, put it next to my bed, and I turned it on uh, every night. Uh, and then when I opened it up after two weeks, I had 282 texts uh, waiting for me. Uh, but that's how it goes. And it was so worth it. And, and what happened was, uh, is that uh, I could sit down and read a book and not have to uh, compulsively look at my phone to see if I missed an email or a text every three minutes. Um, I could uh, sit down and engage my kids and not have this random question that really means nothing, but that I'm curious about that I could Google and get the answer to. Um, I could, uh, I, it was, I had, had these, my mind just opened up. And it was because distractions were eliminated. I could really focus. I could kind of keep the main thing, the main thing, without my cell phone around. Now, I'm not saying that cell phones are bad. I'm not saying the internet's bad. I'm the problem. And somebody else saw that they were the problem, too. I read this New York Times article this week, uh, and the writer was reflecting on his life and the effect that technology had on it. And here's what he says. He said, instead of reading books, I was spending too many hours online checking traffic numbers for my company's website. I was shopping for more colorful socks on Rue La La, even though I had more than I needed. And even clicking through pictures with irresistible headlines such as awkward child stars who grew up to be attractive. (laughs) Doesn't that sound familiar? See, the internet's designed to be an interruption system geared to dividing our attention. And we willingly take on the loss of concentration for the wealth of compelling information that we receive. See, this distraction... This is a distraction, and as 21st century Westerners, we're all addicted, all of us. Young and old, rich and poor, male and female, it's an addiction. And it may be the most socially sanctioned of all addictions, even more than work. See, we're on this compulsion loop, like lab rats, looking for more and more information in order for it to get the same effect. And what we're going to see in our text today is that this, this threat of distraction to the church. See, in the last couple chapters of Acts, we've seen other threats. Uh, two different times, in chapter, once in chapter 4, once in chapter 5, we saw the threat of persecution as those outside the church were threatening to end the church as it was. Uh, then we saw in chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira the threat of corruption. And today we'll see the threat of distraction. 
It's not a new strategy. It's still one of Satan's favorite calling cards for us. He's trying to get us from what's important. He's trying to, keep, he's trying to distract us with important things that aren't primary things. And when he does that, we're rendered useless. So let's look at our passage today. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. <coughs> Sorry. That's going to happen a lot. It's cold. It's keep coming after me. Those little people at my house. Uh, verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The word of the Lord. So what I want to see tonight in verse 1 is the problem. Uh, verses 2 to 6 is the solution. And then verse 7, the result of the solution. Uh, so verse 1, the problem. Uh, you, you see, before you get to the problem, you see in the very beginning of verse 1, that these were exciting days for the church. You see it? That they were, the disciples were increasing in number. When it says disciples, it's not talking about Jesus' 12 disciples. It's, it's using disciples as a synonym for Christians. So the number of Christians were increasing. It would be easy to think that in the midst of this growing church that everything in the church would be going honky-dory. But that is not the case. Because successful evangelism always disrupts the order of the church. I'll say it again. Successful evangelism always disrupts the order of the church. You want to know why? At least from verse 1, you know why it disrupts the church? Well, number one, uh, the reason that it disrupts the church is because it creates cross-cultural tension. You see the Hellenists and the Hebrews. We'll get to it in a minute. The second thing you see is that it's from an influx of spiritual immaturity into the church. You see the word complaint. It's not, that's a different word uh, than concern. It's got a negative connotation to it. And the third is that what this whole thing is about is about the poor in their midst. So they're bringing people uh, who, they're bringing different kinds of people together who are spiritually immature and that are poor. So there's going to be a big problem. So let's look at the spiritual, uh, let's look at the cross-cultural tension one. You see the two groups. One's called the Hellenists and the other are called the Hebrews. Well, both the Hellenists and the Hebrews are Jews. But they're different ethnically. Yes, they have the same religious faith, but they're different See, the Hellenists were uh, from uh, the Greek-speaking nations around the Mediterranean Sea. And what would happen is, is that Jerusalem was, uh, that, that was kind of like Florida for old people on, in, on the East Coast. That when you retire, you go to Florida. Well, if you were a Jew and you lived around the Mediterranean Sea, you would want to get to Jerusalem when you retired. And so when they would get there, they, they were used to speaking Greek. They may be able to speak Aramaic, which is what the Hebrews spoke, but maybe not. 
And so they moved onto their ground, and you know how the, how the Hebrews viewed the Hellenists, don't you? They're like, hey, this is our ground. This is our neighborhood, and you're moving into it. We don't want to worship with you. And the Greek-speaking people said, great, we'll build our own synagogues. So there were synagogues, there were, there were churches for Jews, for uh, the Hellenists, and there were those for, Hebraic, for the Hebrews. So there was a lot of tension. Well, then the gospel goes forward. The Spirit fills the apostles. They begin to preach. And guess who responds? Some Hebrews and some Hellenists. And so now they're in the same room and they got to get along. And there's tension here. And these old people who are moving to Jerusalem, uh, if the man dies, is leaving a widow and those widows are poor. And so guess who gets overlooked in the food distribution? The Hellenists. Now, the Hebrew uh, women, they're going to be taken care of because that's grandma. But the Hellenists, that's not necessarily grandma. And there's always problems when a group becomes cross-cultural. The minority gets overlooked by the majority. Unconscious prejudices are surfaced. Everyone has to listen instead of making assumptions. Cross-cultural preferences have to become just that. Preferences instead of absolutes. See, in a monocultural setting, one can stay blind to their prejudices. That's what they were trying to do by worshiping separately as Jews. When you're, when you're monocultural, you don't have to listen very much. You can assume that basically everyone has the same preferences as you. But think about being a Hebraic Jew. Think about being a Hebrew. If you've been living there for decades and decades and you've had these Hellenists moving in, you have to adjust to the people who aren't like you that you didn't invite into your neighborhood. And now you're sitting in church with them. Think about being a Hellenistic Jew. Think about being a Hellenist. You've endured the scowls of these Hebraic Jews for all these decades. And now you have to lean into the reality that the dividing wall of hostility that was broken down by the cross of Jesus Christ no longer divides you. Everybody's got to move from viewing the opposing group as other and start viewing them as us. This is a huge shift, a monumental shift to ask someone to undergo, especially for a new believer. And the shift didn't happen overnight. That's why we see this second, or the, this second point here. We see complaint. This part of the problem. That's why evangelism disrupts the church. The new people are spiritually immature. Now, I know for us, a lot of times we use the word complain or complain as a synonym for venting or for disagreeing. But the word that Luke chooses here with complain is very similar to the word that's used in Exodus chapter 16. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. Uh, the people of the, the, God's people have been in Egypt in slavery uh, to the Pharaoh. Moses is their leader. He has led them out. The, the, the Red Sea has parted miraculously. And when they got it on the other side of the Red Sea, they are in the desert. And there's no obvious source of food. And so what do these people do? Even though they've just had this miraculous uh, 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 liberation from slavery, even though they've got a leader who's been standing up for them, who stood up to the Pharaoh, uh, who, who put his staff in the ground and the sea parted, Guess who gets the complaint? Moses. 
They complain against Moses. He's the one taking the heat when he's been such a brave leader to them. Well, this is what Luke, the author of Acts chapter 6, is trying to get us to see. Is that in the same way that the people in desert were complaining to Moses, now the people in the church are complaining to the apostles. It's coming from a place of distrust. These were new believers. And they're bringing their spiritual immaturity into the community. So just like when a church becomes cross-cultural, you know you're going to have problems. So you do when you have new believers. And it's all because the devil's up to something. If he can get people in the church to fight, if he can get them to distrust leadership, if he can get them to focus on preference, on fighting over preferences, then they will be rendered ineffective in spreading the, community, spreading the kingdom. All right, so we've seen their complaint. We've seen the Hellenists versus the Hebrews. And then you see that this is a socioeconomic diverse community. You've got poor people in here. That's what the widows are. These are poor folk. And most, widow, most women in the first century, they spent their lives. They, they, lived with their, they lived with their fathers. And the property that their fathers owned would get transferred to their husbands. So when they were widowed, they, owned, they controlled very little property. They had very little economic opportunity. So now they're widowed, they're particularly vulnerable in an economic sense. But when they were a part of the church, the church wasn't just just a widow's club. It wasn't just a poor people club. There were some rich folk in that community too. If you've been with us, you've seen the first five chapters. There are some people who own property. And if you own property in the first century, you were considered to be wealthy. And some of these people were willing to sell their property, give that money to the church so that it could be dispersed to people like the widows. That means when you showed up to church on Sunday, you had some rich people sitting next to some poor people, just like you had some Hellenists sitting next to some Hebrews. And when you put rich people and poor people in the same room, there are going to be problems. And here's why. And you guys know this. On the whole, rich people look down on poor people. You'd never say it. But it's true. Poor people, you would never say it, are intimidated by or are bitter toward people of means. And so what happens is conflict happens. And conflict happened right here in verse 1. So right here in this first verse, you see this very nuanced, complex problem that, is, that exists in the church. And then in verses 2 to 6, you see a solution. When I start thinking about verse 1, I start getting panic attacks. But we see something happen here in verses 2 to 6. It's an amazing solution that the Lord offers up. And the first part of the solution in verses 2 to 6 is that the apostles, the leaders of the church, say, I'm going to focus on, what I'm going to, I'm going to focus on what's most important, and that's praying and preaching. They say it two times in verses 2 to 6. And these two activities, praying and preaching, they go hand in hand. They're inseparable. I had a seminary professor, Dr. Smith, Dr. Robert Smith, he said uh, that a man who doesn't prepare his sermons is a fool. Or a, a man who, who prepares his sermons and doesn't pray is a fool. A man who prays and doesn't prepare, or let me, let me say it again. <laughs> he, was, he said this over and over again. I've never said it before. Uh, a man, who prepare, or a man who prays and doesn't prepare his sermons is a fool. A man who prepares his sermon and doesn't pray is a double fool. See, the two go hand in hand. 
and the apostles here get it right. They knew that the church wouldn't grow if they were distracted from the main thing. This is what we saw them do in the very last chapter of verse 5. The very last chapter of verse 5, uh, the, the, the authorities tell uh, the apostles, quit preaching. They say, we can't do that. we got to keep preaching. And that's why we see what we did in verse 1, that the, 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 their number was growing. And so they know that even though that this is an important concern that the Hellenistic widows are not getting the food they need, they know they've got to keep the main thing the main thing. And so pastors, ever since, we've been fighting this battle of not being overwhelmed. Our calling is to preach the word in this setting, in small group settings, in training settings, in one-on-one settings. But it's so easy to get overwhelmed by other demands. It's easy to get overwhelmed in part because this is our own internal struggle. And it's also part because this is the expectation of many churches. This is to do everything. It's to be omnipresent, to be at the hospital, preparing glorious sermons, administrating great programs, and on the streets with the lost and the least all at the same time. That can both be the expectation of the pastor and of the people. It can be omniscience too. There's this, there's this um, temptation to want to know everything on the part of the pastor and of the people for the pastor to be able to give perfect practical advice and correct astute, impressive theological answers to our curious questions. There's this temptation on the part of the pastor and of the people for the pastor to be omnipotent, able to change the behaviors of all different kinds of people, able to grow the church at some rapid rate. And the reason that it's part of the temptation of the people and of the pastors, even though we would never say it, is that we want the pastor to be God. The pastor wants to be God because he wants to be well thought of. He wants the glory. The church and the pastor just says something more tangible than God himself, so they latch on to it. But friends, if I'm not careful, if Justin's not careful, if you're not careful, what will happen is that your pastors will just become these flailing masses of availability. And you don't need that. You need pastors who are going to declare the word of God to you, who are going to pray for you, and they're going to help you be used in ministry. That's what we see here. They just didn't say, no, we're not going to serve tables. They also, said they, they also appointed leaders to do it. Did you catch that? So the first part of the solution is to give a firm no. The second part, the alternative, is to delegate these seven deacons for this important work. And these deacons, this is really what, it, that's what the word serve means, uh, that's the verb is serve. If you, if, if you make it a noun, it's servant, which is really just another word for deacon. And do you see what the three qualifications for these deacons are? Do you see it there in those verses? There's three. Uh, they are to be of well repute. In other words, they're meaning that they're supposed to be known to be winsome people. They're supposed to be full of the Spirit, which means they're to be mature Christians. And the third part is that they're supposed to be full of wisdom. And man, are they ever going to need some wisdom. They're going to walk into some situations with some Hellenistic widows who have been overlooked, who are going to be wagging their finger and telling these deacons how bad those apostles, those Hebraic Jews really are. Can't you just see the scene? The Greek grandma's all fired up. 
talking about the apostles, and the deacons are the ones to intercede in that situation, and they've got to show support for the apostles. They've also got some dicey situations where they've got to remind the apostles that, hey, these are genuine concerns that really need to be taken care of. Don't just think that they're being overly needy. They're going to need all the wisdom that they can get. So there's these three character issues, but there's something else that's really important that qualifies them for this, per- for this important work. It's their ethnicity. I know you didn't catch it. I didn't either. I had to read a book to catch it. And what you see in all of their names is that their names are all Greek. Meaning that these men are all Hellenists. These seven men are sent to make sure that the women who are their same ethnicity get the help that they need. So now, because the apostles were willing to, 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 to say that they, had, uh, um, that they had limitations, and now because the apostles delegate these worthy servants, successful leadership has been restored in the church. Now, friends, this is already happening in our church. A lot of times I hear about neighborhood groups taking care of each other in a way that I'm really not even a part of. Other than the fact that when they let me know about it, it lets me know how I can pray. And by the way, if you're joining our church and you're expecting uh, me and Justin to be all over your life, I mean, we, we'd really love being with people. Justin and I with people all the time. Uh, but we're outnumbered pretty bad around here. Uh, two on 300 is not good odds. So if you need care, you need to get in a neighborhood group. And that's what happens in these neighborhood groups. And maybe, but maybe you see a need in our community. I mean outside these walls, but perhaps even inside these walls that you think needs to be addressed. Well, great. Come share that concern with us and let us equip you to do the work. And here's what happens when pastors pray and preach, equip their leaders, and the leaders do the work of the ministry. You see it right there in verse 7. Let's read it. Right there in verse 7, it says, And the word of God continued to increase. Isn't that a great phrase? And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. See, that's what happens. That's the result. It makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? The word can't increase when prayer and the ministry are neglected. Evangelistic prayer and preaching, these are the offensive activities of the church, but the offense is put on hold when the church has to play defense to put out the fires that's caused by infighting. And that's why the apostles came up with this quick solution. I think this has a lot to do with us. We need to resolve our issues quickly amongst ourselves to do it in a timely manner so that we can focus on our call. And that's bringing the kingdom of God to bear in our surrounding community. Now, we've been looking at this whole idea of distractions on a church level. But let's talk about it on your indivi- on an individual way for you and for me. It's not just the apostles that need to focus on prayer and the word. It's you and me in our individual lives. And I can promise you something. That if you start taking your personal prayer life and your scripture reading real seriously, if you get real devoted to it, you will never get more distracted than you do than when you sit down to try to read and pray. It's unbelievable what happens. The fire alarm goes off and hasn't gone off in years. Somebody knocks at the door when nobody ever knocks at the door. Your phone goes off. A baby wakes up before you thought they were supposed to. 
All because you sat down and prayed. That's what the devil's after, is to keep us distracted. And then, verse 7 doesn't happen in your life. The Word of God doesn't increase in your life. Think about it another way. This whole distraction as an individual. The, 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 the Hebrews, they got sidetracked by only taking care of their own. The Hellenistic Jews, they got sidetracked by offering up a complaint instead of a concern. And both groups are really doing the same thing. They're playing favorites. And don't we do the same? All the 20-somethings in the church, they want more and more programming for them. They want more things that are more and more relevant for them. Parents want more and more things for their, for their kids. Those who are single want more and more for them. Non-parents want more and more for marriage. And so what we do is that we speak up. And we're completely oblivious to the needs of others. And brothers and sisters, we cannot be co-opted by our friends, by our family, and by our ethnicity. And only advocate for those people instead of those who are different from us. But how's this going to happen? It seems impossible, and it really is, humanly speaking. Our gaze is on ourselves. We are hardwired to be selfish. See, the only way we're going to get our gaze off ourselves, the only way this is going to happen, is that when we see Jesus. We've got to see Jesus. We've got to see Jesus as the model apostle. He was completely committed to prayer and proclamation, while also completely committed to being the model deacon. Not just feeding the widow, but also washing the feet of those who would very soon after fail him. He came from heaven to earth as God. I mean, talk about cross-cultural. Talk about being God and taking on the flesh. He was more different from everybody else on earth than any two ethnicities that we find on earth of the current day. But he was able to love those who were different than them. In fact, he was perfect and we were corrupt and rebellious and broken people, yet he loved us. And friends, it's only when we internalize this love, when this love becomes so much more than cognitive, but it becomes existential, that's when we're free. That's when we're free to get off our high horse and only voice a concern instead of a complaint. We can offer a concern and be willing to be wrong. We're able, we're free to notice those who are different than us because we've taken time to listen and build a relationship. We can stay focused on the prayer, our prayer lives and reading the word because we know that it is a loving God who died for us, who wants to commune with us. We're free to do it. So friends, let's stay focused. Let's not get distracted. Let's make the main thing the main thing and beg the Lord Jesus to increase his word and increase disciples of him. Amen. Oh, Father, would you help us? Uh, We look at this passage and it's so easy to see our need for you. And Lord, I pray that uh, you would grow our sense of our need um, this week. Uh, Lord, that we would uh, fall on our face before you and say, fill us with wisdom. Fill us with the Spirit. Make us people of good repute. Help us notice those who are different than us. Help us be more aware of other people's needs than our own. And Lord, because we know that you will meet all our needs. 
when we get our eyes off ourselves. Lord, do this work in our community, we ask. Amen.